Well, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. And these fellows have Bibles, so if you don't have one, just get their attention as they make their way down the aisle, and they will get a copy of the Scriptures to you so you can follow along as we look at Hebrews 10. It has been eight weeks since our last message in this series in the book of Hebrews, and that's because back on December 13th, we had a missionary presentation, we had a couple of Christmas messages, a couple of New Year's messages, and I've been out of the country for the last two weeks. So we resume our series in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, and in God's good providence, it so happens that the passage that we're going to consider was the favorite passage in the Bible of our brother Dan Elwer, who went to be with the Lord one week ago today. The truth of God's word always, always requires a response. The Bible contains much truth and teaching, but that truth and teaching is not to be an end in itself. The teaching and the doctrine that are given us in the Bible are for the purpose of responding and obeying. That's why very often in the letters of your New Testament, there are two major sections to each of those books. There's a section that lays out truth, teaching, doctrine. And then it transitions to an application section. Based upon now this teaching, this truth, this doctrine, here is what you should do with what you've now been taught. And so there's an explanation and an application. There's doctrine, and then there's our duty. There's the creed, and then there is our conduct. There are the precepts of the truth of Scripture, and then there is the practice that we're to engage in. There are the facts, and there are the functions. I've got a million of these. I could go on. It's instruction and exhortation, explanation, and then applying it to our lives. You see, the Bible is not seeking to produce simply Bible trivia buffs. A bunch of Bible answer men and women who know the answer to all of the trivia of the Bible, but perhaps never put much of it into practice. The truth is, I'd rather have someone who knows less but obeys what he knows than someone who accumulates knowledge but fails to put it into practice. And so I ask you, have you come on this Lord's Day with the thought in mind that we just prayed through song. Speak, O Lord. And as you speak, your servant seeks to obey and to put it into practice. Or have we, many of us, as we so often do, come to just get another bit and snatch of information without ever thinking about how it might apply to my obedience? Many of you have heard me say over the years that most Christians are educated well beyond the level of of their obedience. We tend to know much more than we're willing to put into practice. And how many times do we come to church, listen and leave, but nothing changes? And you see, friends, that is dangerous because obeying what God tells us is not optional. Notice the wording in your outline that's inserted in your program. I say there, we must, we must remember what Christ has done 
and we must respond. Notice it's imperative. We must do these things. We cannot say to God, I've heard what you've said. Let me think about that. I'll get back to you. Today's passage marks a turning point in the book of Hebrews. A turning point to the application of all the truth, all of the doctrine, all of the teaching that has gone on for ten and a half chapters. The final three and a half chapters are going to focus on putting into practice what has been taught in those ten and a half chapters regarding the work of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see this in the very first word, this transition, you see it in the first word of verse 19 of chapter 10. It's the word, therefore. And I want you to notice, then, it's saying, therefore, based upon all of this, here's what you do. But I want you to notice how that transition is made. Notice the last two verses of the entire doctrinal state section, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 10. Their sins and lawless acts, God says, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, that last phrase is actually the summary of everything that has happened in the ten chapters that precede. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. The one sacrifice for sin that is needed for all time and for all people has been given in our high priest, Jesus Christ. Therefore, here is what you do in response to that. Our high priest, Jesus, has rested from his work of providing payment for our sin. That work is finished. It's complete. It's perfect. It's done. And any attempt to add to it is a matter of unbelief, and it's an affront to Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. And that's why we say we can have a relationship with God, not by what we do, but by faith alone, by believing in who Jesus is and what Jesus did alone. The purpose of Jesus coming was to do this work on the cross, and that work on the cross is done, but hear this. He continues his work in us. And we have a responsible participation in that work. And so you have these last three and a half chapters. Based on what he's done, now you respond this way. The purpose of Jesus coming and what he did on earth is that we could have a relationship with God. So that those of us that included all of us at one time who were outside of his presence because of sin, could be invited into relationship with him because our sin, all of it, every last sin, we could ever commit or conceive of committing all of it, past, present, and future, has been covered by the sacrifice of our great high priest and forgiven by our merciful God. That's what these ten and a half chapters have taught us. And Jesus came on a mission to remove the obstacle that prevented us from having a relationship with God. That obstacle being sin. And that mission is accomplished. And it's applied to you and me when we receive from him the payment that he has made on our behalf. Because we believe that we need it. And we believe that he has obtained it. And having received the gift of forgiveness he offers, it then doesn't end there. 
Because remember, the whole purpose was for us to have a relationship with God. And so it's not one of those situations that you might read about in the paper sometimes where somebody just wants to do a benevolent act and so they hear about someone who has a debt to pay. Maybe they're behind on their rent and so they pay their debt, but they want to do so anonymously. They don't want to know anyone to know who the benefactor was. But Jesus paid our sin debt and not only wants us to know he did it, he wants us to respond with worship. Both formally, as we do in what we call the worship hour, as we do in this hour, but informally and every day as we worship him with our very lives. And so the central command of the entire book of Hebrews is in verse 22 of this chapter. Draw near to God. For that reason, I titled this entire series on Hebrews by that command of God. It's about drawing near to God. That was all about what Jesus was accomplishing for us and now commands us to do. From chapter 1 and verse 1 to chapter 10 and verse 18... We're given who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And now based on that, a response is called for. And as we're going to see, it's a response that really involves all that it means to be a Christian. It's a call to salvation for those who've never trusted in Jesus. It's a call to recommitment for those of us who have. And it's all squarely based on doctrine, on truth, for ten and a half chapters. I just want to mention as an important aside that that puts the lie to one of the chief features of many of today's churches. Because many of our churches today, in an effort, and a noble effort, to reach non-Christians, have decided to downplay doctrine and teaching and truth. And so they ask people to respond to Christ, but they haven't adequately presented Christ. Hear this, friends. In order for folks to make an informed choice, to receive Jesus Christ and to follow Him as Lord. That's a life-changing, life-altering choice. In order to make that choice, they have to have adequate information. And the Bible throughout takes the time to present that information. And if we preach the Bible, then we'll present that truth consistently. And then we will call for a response that will be based squarely on the foundation of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And now we call for a response. Without that, ask yourself, what is it that we're asking people to respond to then? Hey, do you want to be part of our cool group? You like our band, don't you? Sign up and come every week. It'll be a blast, really. Now, I'm in favor of having a blast. But our appeal to people to respond to Christ has to be based on more than that. I think you would agree. It's got to be based on the truth, the doctrine of who he is and what he did. In fact, there are only two possible responses to the truth that's given in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 10 and verse 18. There is the positive response that we're called to and we will see today, or there's the negative response that begins in verse 26. And there a warning is given about failing to respond rightly to all that Christ offers. And so today... We need to see from Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, what I have in the outline that you should have in your hand. 
that Jesus has made the way for our relationship with God. And based on that, here's how we respond. Cultivate that relationship and urge others to do the same. So as we look at this passage, let's bow for a moment and ask God to help us to come with hearts that are ready to obey his word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the work that you've done over centuries to give us this infallible, inspired, inerrant word from you, the God of the universe. And by your grace, we hold it in our hands, precious treasure. Help me, help us not to take it lightly, but help us to approach it as it is, the very voice of our God telling us who he is, what he has done on our behalf, and then calling us to response. Help me, Lord. Help us, Lord, to come this time and every time we open your word with hearts that are ready to receive and obey. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The writer of Hebrews tells us, as we now need to apply the truth that's been given, that we need to recall, we need to remember what Jesus has done for us. And I've listed for you there three things that Hebrews has told us Jesus has done for us. The first is that Jesus has opened the door to God. Now, why did the door to God need to be opened? Because the door to God has been shut for millennia to human beings. Going back to the garden and the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world. You all remember the story. Adam and Eve sin, and having sinned, they are banished from the garden, and they are banished from the presence of God. And there are, if you remember reading in Genesis chapter 3, God said, I am so intent on them being banished from my presence that I'm going to place some angels in the front of the entrance to the garden with flashing swords so they cannot enter again separated from the God with whom they were made for fellowship, all because of the entrance of sin. Jesus has reopened the door that had been closed to humanity by God. Sometimes I'll be in a software program, perhaps you've done this. You're trying to get into something and you get the access denied. You know there's the access denied to the presence of God and to relationship with God since Eden. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence now to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. The most holy place. You all remember what that was. It was the inner compartment within the temple and the tabernacle where God would dwell in a special way. And God would meet with men there, but he would meet with men there only under very restrained circumstances. One man, one time a year, the high priest could go in and only under very strict circumstances. And he would go in with much fear and trepidation. Everyone else left outside, still access denied to the throne room of God. To come into the presence of God, to approach the Holy of Holies was a very fearful thing for a God-fearing Jew. The temple no longer stands in Jerusalem. It was destroyed in the year 70 A.D. 
But Orthodox Jews, I'm told, even to this day in Jerusalem, have certain places they will not step. In fact, have signs that say you cannot step here as an Orthodox Jew because the Holy of Holies may have been here at one time. That's how fearful a thing it was. The average person could not go into the presence of God. And that section of the temple tabernacle was separated by a veil, a curtain. And that's why verse 20 says, We can go into this most holy place by a new and living way, open for us through, and you see the word there, the curtain. That curtain, the the veil that separated the most holy place from the other compartments of the tabernacle and temple. But then it says at the end, the curtain, that is, his body. How does Jesus' body relate to the curtain that separated men and women from the most holy place, the holy of holies within the temple and the tabernacle. You all remember that who Jesus is. You remember that he is God having come in the flesh. But he came in the flesh, in, in the flesh as a man in a body, and that body, that flesh, veiled. It, it hid, it shrouded, it covered over All that Jesus really is. And that was absolutely necessary because no one can look at God and live, you remember. And see the full glory of God. And so we sing a song at Christmas time. Hark the herald angels sing. One of the lines is, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, become flesh, deity. Jesus' body veiled his, His glory. And that body was torn. And on the cross, the Bible tells us in Matthew 27, that when the body of Jesus was torn, at that moment, the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, signifying now that that for which we had access denied has now been opened for us by the blood of Jesus. What has God done? What has Jesus done? He's opened the door to God. A door that at one time had been closed. Because of who he is, Jesus can not only now open that door, but notice secondly in your outline, Jesus can lead us into the presence of God. Because Jesus is God. Jesus does not just say, I know the way there. I am the way there. And as a matter of fact, I am there. And I can lead you there. So, a man can direct one who asks for directions to the White House and say, it's at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But that doesn't mean he has the right to take him into the presence of the president in the Oval Office. But Jesus can take us the entire way. Why? Because Jesus is God the Son. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 tells us, That Jesus is the anchor that holds behind the curtain. And Jesus thus can lead us into the very presence of God. He's opened the way by the giving of his body. His torn body tore the curtain in the temple. Because he is God the Son, he can lead us into the very presence of God. And third, Jesus makes us presentable to God. Notice verse 22, the last part of verse 22. That we draw near to God, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience 
and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what's that all about? This whole passage assumes that we have been made priests who can now serve before God in His presence. And so there is no longer a special class of people who are priests. All those who come to God through God the Son, Jesus, are now priests before Him and can serve Him in His presence. And Jesus is the one who makes us presentable to God so that we can do that very thing. Back in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you may remember that there were indeed a different class of people, the priests that served in the temple. And there was the high priest who had the privilege of once a year going into the most holy place. But not everybody could do these things. It's all changed with what Jesus has done. And in the first part of the Bible, when those priests were preparing for their work, they had to be made ready for that work. They were made ready like this. The Bible instructed to bring the priest to the entrance to the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle that had the most holy place. Bring the priest to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash him with water. And take the garments and dress him. And take the anointing oil and anoint him. And the language at the end of verse 22 that says, we can now come with our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us. And having our bodies washed with pure water is hearkening back to this. And it's saying just like the priest was prepared to enter into the presence of God and serve Him, Jesus has now made us presentable to God. And Jesus has washed us. He's robed us. He's anointed us for this marvelous, marvelous work. We have to remember, friends, what Jesus has done for us. And then we must. We must respond to what Jesus has done for us. In verses 22 through 25, the way we respond is with this triple understanding that's used throughout the Bible of the whole of the Christian life. We respond with faith and with hope and with love. Throughout the Bible, you have that triumvirate of characteristics of a, of a Christian faith and hope and love. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and now here in Hebrews chapter 10, we are to respond with faith and with hope and with love. Let's see that together. Because of what Jesus has done, we are now to approach God confidently. First part of verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now that we have been cleaned and robed and anointed, we are to enter fearlessly, boldly, confidently into the presence of God, having been readied for that work, entering the Father's house as did, you remember, the prodigal. We did the parable of the prodigal at Christmas time just a month ago. And you remember that the Father accepted him. After he'd been separated from the Father by his own volition, the father received him gladly back and he put a robe on him and he put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. What the father was doing was making this son, this child, fit for the father's house. And what Jesus has done now 
has made us fit for the Father's house so that now we can enter confidently into His presence to serve Him as His priests. We're confident. Why? Because we have faith, full assurance of faith, verse 22 says. Many of you will remember, I've told you numerous times, the word faith in the New Testament means to believe. So why can I have this confidence? Because I believe. What do I believe? I believe all that chapter 1 and verse 1 through chapter 10 and verse 18 tell me about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so I can enter in fully confident, full assurance of faith. I believe who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and that he has made me, he has made us equipped priests to serve him in his presence. Hear this, friends. We sometimes say, you know, I'm losing faith. I'm weak in faith. If you find yourself like that, I'm weak in faith. You know, I'm just not sure. I'm still coming, still attending, I'm still doing stuff, but it's just not there for me. It's because you've weakened in what you believe. And you need desperately to be reminded of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Hear this. The gift of the blood of the Lord Jesus, the gift of the sacrifice, the gift of the saving work that He has done for us, it is the means by which all else that He has promised to us as His chosen ones, as His elect ones, the Bible calls us, it's the means by which all of those promises will be accomplished. And all of this is His great gift to us. And it's an expression of the measure of the longing of God in heaven for you to spend time in His presence, for you and me to spend time in His presence. And I want you to just take a moment to reflect on that, to perhaps strengthen those who are weak in their belief, to be reminded of the lengths to which the God of heaven has gone to bid us to have time and relationship with Him. What Christ did is the measure of God's love for you and for me. And so stick your name in there. What Jesus did is the measure of God's love. And I can just go around the room and say, put your name there. Now consider how awesome and magnificent that is, friends. And so verse 19 says to us, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the measure of the boldness we're to have is the extent to which God has gone to make this relationship possible. It's nothing less than the blood of Jesus. The measure of the boldness, the confidence that we're to have is the blood. If our Lord Jesus Christ has shed his blood, hear this, has died violently, and he has, and he's done that for you and me, and he did. That's the measure of the acceptance that we have for the eternal, infinite Son of God has offered a sacrifice for us that has infinite value. And so the door is thrown open. And we may be just as bold as the power of the blood of Christ, which is infinite. And so we come with full assurance of faith. And the question for you, dear friend, 
If you're wavering in your belief and your walk with the Lord, is do you believe that? And by God's grace, you are here to be reminded of the great lengths to which God has gone so that you can approach Him confidently. Here's the second response we're to have in your outline. We're to believe God continually. I called it continual belief. We place our initial faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ when we come to Him, but then that is to continue on as a pattern of life until He returns or takes us home. And it's continual belief because we have hope, verse 23 tells us. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, And then verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. It's continual belief, which is the same thing in the New Testament as as hope. Continuing belief, continuing to grasp what we have first obtained in knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Hope in your New Testament is not a wish. It's not, I hope something happens. I hope that turns out. But rather, it's a confident expectation that God will fulfill His purposes. So how do we respond to who Jesus is and what He's done? We respond with hope. We believe Him continually. Think about somebody who does not know Jesus Christ in this world. In this chaotic world. This world that seems absolutely to be out of control. How do you fit it together at all? And an honest secularist, that is somebody who denies God, somebody who denies that there is a sovereign God who is lovingly in control of the world, an honest secularist would admit that he doesn't have any hope. One such honest secularist was a man named Bertrand Russell. Some of you may know that name. He's an infamous philosopher. He wrote an infamous booklet in 1950 titled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And Bertrand Russell said this, The labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. There's a pick-me-up for you. Only within the scaffolding of this truth, of these truths, only on the firm, hear this, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. What hopelessness. And what hope you have in Jesus. What confident expectation you are to have and I am to have in Jesus. Because he has proven over and over to us who he is and what he has done. And that he can be fully, fully trusted. That is why Christians throughout the centuries have displayed amazing courage in the face of impossible circumstances. One such Christian was a man named Chrysostom in the third century. Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, and the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. 
And this is what Chrysostom said in this conversation with the emperor. You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. But I will slay you, the emperor said. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. But I'll take away your treasures, the emperor said. But you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from man. You'll have no friend left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from which you can never separate me. I defy you. For there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. And friends, that is why we can hold on fast to the hope that we have in Jesus. Because he has proven over and over again that he can be trusted in the midst of every circumstance. And that's why verse 23 ends this way. Hold unswervingly to the hope. Here's why. For, because, he who promised is faithful. That's why I can do this. Not because it depends on me. If it depends on your unwavering walk and your weakness and my weakness, forget it. But he is faithful. And I can therefore have this confident expectation. There's good reason not to have confidence in ourselves, but he is faithful. And he will make good on the hope he's implanted in us. And if we look at our track record of wavering walk, we could despair of ever arriving. But when we remember our hope is not based on our dependability, but on his faithfulness, his faithfulness not only to us, but first to himself. God is first faithful to himself. Why? Because God cannot lie. God's character will not allow him. He's incapable of lying. And if God says, I will see you through to the end, you can bank on it. It's guaranteed. You will persevere until the end. Now, you may ask, you know, hey, dude, I already know I'm going to heaven. I believe that. I prayed a prayer ten years ago. Why do I have to constantly be reminded to persevere and to do these things. Well, here's why. We tend to think of it as something that happened and then that's it. But when we come to Christ, it's something that indeed did happen in the past, but it's to have ongoing effects in the present that brings us then to our destination in the future. And so please understand, the Bible does not simply tell us to remember the past, but to hold on in the present. And the reason that we're to be reminded time and time again in Scripture is because we easily forget and the reminding is the means by which we persevere. So be reminded of who Jesus is and what He's done and what He calls us to and why you can have absolute hope, confident assurance in it. Then verses 24 and 25, how do we respond to who Jesus is? The Bible tells us we're to provoke one another conscientiously. Verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We've had these verses from verse 19 to 23 that are all about our relationship with God. And now in verses 24 and 25, it transitions to our relationship with one another. What's the connection between those? Well, the writer of Hebrews, as the writer of Scripture do writers of scripture do throughout assume that you'll want others to experience this relationship with God if indeed you really have it. It's assumed that if we love God, we'll want others to love him too. Do you all remember what love is? Love is doing what's in the best interest of another. 
If I have this relationship with God and I love you, then doing what's in your best interest means that I will do all that I can to help you enter into that relationship and to move forward in that relationship. And so we'll see the need of relationship with Him as paramount for the good of those who are around us. John said this in 1 John, If we do not love our brother who we have seen, how can we say we love God who we have not seen? And so verse 24 says, let us consider. The word consider means to think about. Sometimes we say, consider this. Consider one another. You could just right there, think about other people. Think about what they need. Think about how you can be an instrument of spurring them on in their faith and in their hope because you love them. Think about them. Now, to think about them, would you all agree with me? You have to know them. You have to know something about them. You have to be engaged with them. You have to talk with them. You have to rub shoulders with them. And so the Christian who says, I've got all of this stuff with between me and God, and I thank Jesus for giving me access to the throne room of God. I have the faith and I have the hope, but the love thing I can do without is somebody who is pursuing a truncated approach to the Christian life. God says, what I have done for you is to issue forth in your relationships with others. And so some of you here need to change. Remember at the beginning, I said we come to obey. And some of us here need to say, I'm no longer going to take the Lone Ranger Christian approach. I'm going to avail myself of the relationships that God has placed in my path in order to be an instrument of encouragement to them. This was Dan Elwert's favorite passage. I thank God for that man as we did yesterday in the memorial service. And I thank God that he chose a passage like this as his favorite passage, and he lived it. The man lived it. We said in the memorial service last night that he would tell his girls on Saturday nights, let's think about now somebody that we can encourage tomorrow when we go to church. Let's think about somebody that we're going to approach and find out what they need and how we can supply that need for them to be an encouragement to them. Last night during the reception at the memorial service, I don't think he would mind me saying this. I was talking to Brother Ed Bedillo. Many of you know that Brother Ed has gone through a lot of sickness and difficulty himself. And I was somewhat surprised to see him there for as long as he was there because normally he can't be out that much. And I said, thanks for coming. He said, I absolutely would not have missed it. I said, did you know Dan fairly well? He said, Dan called me all the time. And Dan gave me encouragement and instruction all the time. I had no idea until last night that that was another one of the recipients of the grace of God through our brother Dan. We're to provoke one another conscientiously. And that means we have to meet together consistently. Verse 25, let us not give up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. When a person forsakes the meeting of the saints at regular times and says, I don't need that anymore, it's a sign of declining faith. Generally, declining faith and decaying hope and dwindling love. You see, notice, it's all of these things that Jesus has done, the faith and the hope that he's provided, that's to issue forth in the love that manifests itself in the relationships between God's people in his assembly. It goes in that order, faith and hope and then love. But last in... 
last out. The truth is, when someone stops being with God's people, the faith and the hope have already gone. The last thing to go is their attending church. And friends, if you find yourself saying, I can take it or leave it, it's a warning. But your faith is weak if not gone. Your hope is weak if not gone. But God brought you here today to rekindle that in you. It means that although you may still be attending, you're obviously here, then it may well be that the foundation is already eroded, that it's just a matter of time. So be warned lovingly. And then lastly, verse 25, we're to encourage one another urgently. Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the first century Christians believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And so they were looking for the day, expectantly looking for the day. And every minute that passed by was the day approaching. Every day, every hour, every minute, we moved closer to the return of the Lord. And all the more then, every moment it becomes all the more urgent for us to put into practice what we've been called to do because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We're going to bow in just a moment. Friends, obeying God is not optional. You have heard what God has said about His call to us based upon who Jesus is and what He's done for us to respond to Him, to enter into His presence with confidence because we have full assurance of faith, to believe continually because we have the confident expectation that He will fulfill His promise in us, and that's to issue forth in our relationships with one another. When we bow in just a moment, I hope that there will be professing Christians throughout this room who will recommit themselves to what God has called us to do in this assembly. And I pray as well that there will be those who will come to Jesus for the first time. This Jesus about whom I have spoken is the one who has given you access to God if you will take the gift that he offers. And how do you do that? You realize that it's your sin that put his body on the cross, my sin. You recognize that Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. You repent of that. You say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to go your way, not my way. I've sinned. Jesus paid for my sin. I ask you to apply that to me, and I want to follow you. And you receive him into your life. When we bow, you pray. In your own words, from your heart to God, you express that to him. The Bible guarantees he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow. Father, thank you for these precious words in your word. And thank you, Lord, for this reminder, which is the means that you use to cause us to persevere so that we do not wander from the faith and the hope and the love to which you have called us. We thank you for the basis of that faith and that, that hope. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, thank you for the fact that I, that we can, if we will so choose, go through every day confident that we are in your hand because of what we see in Jesus. And that everything that happens in our circumstances is for your glory. And that you are using us in ways, even in ways we cannot see, that will have eternal and abiding consequences. Thank you for that belief, that hope that is based on the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And help us 
if we do believe and if we do have these, this confident expectation, help us to have that issue forth in our love for one another. May Community Baptist Church be a place where it may truly be said that we know that they are his disciples because they love one another. May it be evident. May we follow in the example of our dear brother Dan in seeking to encourage others and put them before ourselves because we love as you loved us. And I pray that there may be people here right now who are receiving Jesus Christ as Savior for the first time. That they are saying, yes, I need the salvation, the rescue, the deliverance, the forgiveness that he offers by having offered himself on the cross for me. I pray that you're drawing them to yourself by your spirit right now for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.